Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock and a refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of, of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from, from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servants. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame, for let them go to silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your, is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from, a strife, from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord. For he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, be abund but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. This morning is found in 2 Corinthians. We're reading from chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> 
For we who live are always being given over, given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. <coughs> Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is the word of the Lord. Guys, that was dragging. I know it's raining outside. I know it's summer. And I know that I coughed and made a mess of that reading. It's still good news, though. And so let's try it again. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, as we confess that we are weak, but that you are strong, we look to you this morning and ask for your, your spirit to give us understanding and guidance, that you lead us into all truth, and that you convince us that you are a rock and a steady refuge for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible available, you will find it helpful to turn to Psalm 31. We are continuing in our series from the Psalms about God being a rock and a refuge for us. And today we're particularly focused on God being a refuge in the midst of weakness that we encounter and experience in life. When I was graduating seminary, my wife began to faithfully pray for me uh, that God would send a mentor, an older and wiser pastor into my life one who would particularly come to understand me and walk with me over time and years. It didn't happen immediately, and then it happened in an unexpected way. A man who was very different than me, a background that couldn't be more opposite, but he was there, and he was faithful, and he was honest, and he was true. And over the years, Tim has become a valued friend, about 15 years that we've now known one another and that he has spoken to me in situation after situation. And Tim has a storytelling quality to, uh, to him. One of the things that he often does when I bring a situation that I'm wanting advice to, he'll say, well, did I tell you about the time Ed Robinson said this? Or did I tell you about the time that Verley Sangster did this? Or did I tell you about that student at Geneva College? And typically, at this point, I now know the story. But I say, no, tell me what Ed said. No, tell me again what Verley reminded you of. Tell me about that situation. And it's not that Tim's memory fails him. It's just in each of those moments, despite having told the story, there's a certain repetition because he is driving home particular things that he wants me to know. Yes, theoretically, I know what Ed said. Yes, theoretically, I know what Verley said to him. Yes, theoretically, I understand the situation that he walked through, or I know the proverb that he's about to tell me. But what Tim is doing in that moment of repetition 
of driving something home into my heart. That is what he seeks to accomplish. He doesn't want me just to know the theory of knowledge, but he wants me to appropriate the truth that he's pointing to. And friends, this is the great value of repetition. And when we look at the Psalms, we particularly see repetition. We see God our rock, God our refuge, God our fortress over and over and over again. And when we approach the Psalms just as didactic material, as theoretical knowledge, we'll become tired of it. Why does it constantly repeat this, that God is a refuge for us? It's not because we don't know that theoretically. The reason that it's repeated inside of these prayers in particular is so that we will appropriate it. So that we will know, not just in theory that God is refuge for us, but that we would appropriate that truth and we would experience God as refuge. And in Psalm 31, we have one of the strongest statements of God being a refuge for us. Four times in the psalm, across the 24 verses, we are told that God is a refuge. And we find the psalm in the context of weakness, that David is in some kind of threat and trouble, as we'll see. And here he is weak, looking to strength, looking to God for strength, that God would buffet him. And so the question in front of us this morning is how do we experience God as a strong fortress? How do we know God as a refuge in the middle of all of our weakness? And the psalm guides us in at least five directions five directions about how we experience God as a refuge in the middle of crisis and weakness. The first of these we find in verse 1 and 2. And we see here that finding refuge in God begins in an exercise of faith. Follow with me in verse 1. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. Now, David, in the middle of some kind of crisis, we're not exactly sure where to locate it, but what he does is he turns to God. Now, I can nearly test your patience with the simplicity of this point this morning, that in the midst of David's crisis, He turns to prayer, looking to God to be his deliverer. He calls out for God in his righteousness to come to his relief. And this is nothing new for you. This is not new information. Yes, we know theoretically that when we are in crisis and when we are in trouble, we are to turn to God. But when it comes to practice, all of us still struggle with this. Yes, we know the theology, we have the understanding that God is a refuge, that God acts in his righteousness, but when we find ourselves in the middle of difficulty, we tend to move in two directions. The first direction we tend to move is horizontal. That is, we go out to those who are around us, and we share with them our crisis, and we go to find support, which is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. And we go to find affirmation, and we go to find love. But we go out horizontally. And then the other direction that we tend to move is we move inward. That in the middle of the crisis, we are very prone to pull up into that very comfortable bed called self-pity. 
And we snuggle ourselves into that blanket and we delight in it. It's a comfortable place for us. And this is so often where we stop. We go out horizontally and then we turn inwardly in the middle of crisis, in the middle of weakness. And what this psalm invites us into is a turn vertically, that we bring our distress and we come honestly to God and we call out to him in faith. Now, why is it that we can go to God? David provides this for us in the second half of verse 1. As he prays, he says, In your righteousness, deliver me. And so he's speaking of God's righteousness. This points to God's actions, who God is in his being, and how he acts in his covenant. It's pointing out the fact that God, who has made promises to us, never fails to keep those promises. That God has promised to be our deliverer. And so then David turns to that one who has made that promise and says, let me find refuge in you. And so David is proclaiming that the God who has sworn his covenant because of his character will always keep his promises. He is unflinchingly faithful. Now, friends, the side of it that we don't understand is that we don't understand always how God will go about fulfilling those promises. What we know is that he will accomplish his purpose, that he will fulfill his promise, that he will make good on what he said. But it is a mysterious thing how he goes about that. But David in the psalm can come to God, who he knows is a refuge for him. He calls on this God who is faithful to every word he has spoken, and he puts the situation in front of him. And that's what we are called to do. That's what it means to find God to be a refuge, is to approach him in faith, that he will make good on all of his purposes and all of his plans on all of his promises. And so this is where we begin. We begin hiding in God by bringing our request, approaching him in faith. Now the second piece to this, to find refuge in God, we simply state our distress, that we come honestly to him. We'll find several cycles of this through Psalm 31, but particularly focused in verses 9 through 13. Here what we find is that there's not one particular type of trouble that is spelled out by this particular psalm. Rather, what we have is there are traps and there are taunts. There is sin and there is shame. There is sorrow and there is loneliness. There is pain and there is affliction. And many people ask, well, what exactly was going on in the original context? And part of the genius of the Psalms is that there wasn't supposed to be just one thing going on, but rather in the multiple things and all the variants of what is presented to us, we can find ourselves relating to the situation, the crisis, that we find ourselves in weakness. And the Psalm is written to, in order to minister to us in the middle of that weakness and in the middle of that crisis, the various crises that you and I encounter in life. And so in verse 9, David cries out, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. My life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. And my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become 
like a broken vessel. It's poetic language, and yet it's powerful. An honest statement of where David finds himself in this moment, that he is in distress. His life is broken. And the lesson that we need to learn from that honest speech in the Psalms is that in distress, we don't downplay the situation. We also don't ignore it, pretending like it doesn't exist. And we also just don't cynically shrug our shoulders and use that classic line, it is what it is. Now, friends, you have something better that's offered to you by the fact that God has adopted you and brought you into his family and called you his sons and his daughters. He offers you the opportunity to come to him and state your distress, where you don't have to ignore it, you don't have to pretend that it's not there, you don't have to downplay it, you don't have to cynically just accept it. But rather, you can bring your distress before him, and you can do so continually. One of the things that we learn about this psalm is that David does it over and over. He comes at it at least twice. And that's what God invites us to do. And when we're finding him as a refuge, we feel that freedom. We appropriate the truth by bringing our distress to him and putting words to it. Many years ago now, when I was a young assistant pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee, Melissa and I had decided and discerned that it was time that God was moving us on and that uh, my time there of learning and being shaped as a, as a pastor had come to an end, and we felt particularly called into church planting. We were 32 years old at that point and eager to go engage something difficult. We didn't know what all that would require of us, but we were ready to launch out into it. And so we began interviewing and looking at various situations. They ranged from Boston to Indiana to Florida, and we flew and we interviewed. And at that point in the process, I was in control. I was calling people and interviewing them, asking them about the opportunities, what the neighborhoods looked like, and they would then ask me about my gifts, and I was able to be honest about who I was and who I wasn't and what seemed to fit and what didn't. There were lots of different opportunities. There was one in Washington, D.C. that seemed to be more appealing to us and made the most sense around who we were. But all the other opportunities that we looked at didn't make sense and they weren't stacking up they weren't adding up in fact we just didn't want to do them they were great people there were churches that were needed it just didn't seem very compelling to us and that God wasn't calling us to it but then the strange thing was that the opportunity that we wanted to pursue in Washington wasn't opening up that there was some things that were outside of our control. That there were decisions that had to be made upstream that we could have nothing to do with. There were funding sources that, had, that decisions had to be made by other people. And what I found myself in was just a nightmare of wanting to be able to say yes to something, and yet I could not control it and I could do nothing about the opportunity opening up. It felt like my hands were tied. It was a general experience of weakness where I was handcuffed and couldn't do anything. I went to Wednesday evening at the church one night when I was particularly despairing because I didn't want to say yes to one of these other opportunities, but I felt like I was going to have to. 
And I was in the middle of that inner turmoil. It was just swirling around in me. And I listened to one of my fellow ministers speak about God's timing and answers to prayer. And I listened. I listened to the lesson rather cynically at first because I knew all the theology. And then it struck me that, yes, theoretically, I had the theology. But there was something experiential that I was failing to appropriate. That night, I went home. And I explained all of my distress to God. That I was not in control, that I was frustrated, that I was discouraged, that I was disappointed in the fact that he hadn't answered my prayers. I went to bed that night without any answers, and I went to work the next morning. And uh, the first thing that popped onto my screen was an email from the guys who I was working with in Washington saying, hey, talk to, uh, give us a call today. Funding has been approved. <laughs> And it doesn't always work that way. But learning to bring our distress to God, that this is part of finding him as a refuge. Stating it honestly, bringing the full case. This is what David encourages in Psalm 31 as he talks about the depth of his woe. Third piece to this that the psalm guides us in. To find refuge in God, we affirm our faith even when we're wavering. There are a couple of different cycles that happen in this psalm of 24 verses. You'll find them in verses 1 through 8 and then 9 through 20 and then a closing section. But several times in the midst of the prayer, the psalmist confesses his trust in God. Follow with me from verses 3 through 5 first. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. Do you hear the confidence inside of this? You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. He's so confident. He's speaking about a redemption he has not yet experienced. He's looking towards something in the future. And then once again in verses 14 and 15. But I say in you, O Lord, I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. And then in verses 19 and 20. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and work for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. And so several times in the midst of the prayer, the David affirms that God is his deliverer and that God will bring deliverance and he expresses his confidence. And for many of us, when we read that, this actually doesn't become a source of encouragement. It actually becomes a source of critique because we, you'll simply say, well, Chuck, when I'm in the middle of crisis, when I'm feeling all of my weakness, the very thing in jeopardy is my confidence that God is going to do something about it. That's how we all feel. And we saw that last week in Psalm 42 and 43 that David expresses his own doubts and that he was wavering in his faith. And so many people say, well, I would never be able to come to God and express such confidence to him because I don't feel it internally. And I want to suggest something to you about these psalms when we find that these strong statements of confidence that God is going to deliver that these are not examples of just supernatural faith. 
But rather, what it is, is the psalmist is ministering to his own doubt. David is counseling himself. He's repeating the truths that he knows, the theology that he understands that God is a rock and God is a refuge. God in his steadfast love will deliver, that he can put his life into the hands of God. And he's ministering the truth to his divided heart. He is speaking these things to himself. He is strengthening his wavering faith. And in the middle of our weakness, this is what we most desperately need, is rehearsing the promises of God, reminding ourselves of the truth, driving them down. Look once again in verses 14 and 15. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. And this is one of those beautiful places where in poetry we have a wonderful statement of trusting in God. Even despite the doubts that were raging inside of him and all the feelings of being cut off and alarmed that were swirling in David's heart, confessing that he trusts in God. And the challenge for each of us is to find those tight and dense places in Scripture where the promises of God are wonderfully expressed and minister to us in a particular way and to commit those to memory and to meditate upon them, to draw them down into your inner being where it has a grip on you. And when you feel your faith wavering, you call down on that and you pull down on it and you say, no, this is what is true. And guys, that's the process that we all have to enter into and engage because we do find our hearts divided and we find our weaknesses very compelling and we don't always believe that God is strong and that God will deliver and God will make good for me. And we have to minister God's truth back against that. Personally, for me, it's been Romans 8.32. It's one of the very first verses that I memorized as I entered into college, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And for me, that verse captures the gospel with a simplistic beauty. The God who didn't spare his own son is not going to spare you anything. And then the litany of verses that follow talk about how you can trust this God through all situations and circumstances of life. And the challenge to you is find your verse meditate on it commit it to memory this is not a once a lifetime activity it is something that goes with you print it on a t-shirt wear it wherever you need to i don't know do what you need to do to counsel this truth down into your heart so we affirm our faith even when things are wavering the fourth piece to this as we find god as a refuge is we also recall the past experiences of deliverance that God has worked in our lives. Follow with me in verses 21 and 22. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. One of the things that David uses to bolster his wavering and weak faith is he remembers experiences of God's faithfulness and of his deliverances in the past. 
He's speaking of a situation most likely from 1 Samuel 23. What took place was David was in the wilderness hiding from Saul, and Saul had gone out against him to murder him. He was aiming to kill him. And Saul pressed in, and David was on one side of the mountain, and Saul was on the other. And the book explains that Saul was about to capture David. And in that moment, then some riders arrived from Israel, and they tell Saul that the Philistines had invaded. And suddenly he was diverted, and he leaves David alone in the wilderness. And David remembered that past deliverance of God's faithfulness. When everything seemed to be at an end, when he was out of resources, there was nothing inside of his control that he could do. When he recalls this grace and mercy that intervened and just stopped everything that was spinning out of control. Recalling that inspires future faith for him. It inspires confidence. And friends, one of the things that we have to cultivate and nurture in our lives is those past experiences. Those stories need to be told. They need to be shared. They need to be shared with children and children's children. They need to be shared with one another because they encourage us and they embolden us and strengthen us to continue to believe. So recall the past. We don't want to be short-sighted and not remember God's faithfulness or to, to appear to be unthankful. And the final piece to this, though, is we find God as a refuge, is we wait in this prayerful posture. You'll note how the psalm ends. Be strong. It's an exhortation. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. And this is one of the most distressing things about weakness is that we are asked to wait on God in the middle of all of our weakness, that he would be our strength, that this is our strength, that we abide in our weakness and we wait on God and his timing, that our heart take courage, that he will deliver, that he will make good on his promises, even though we don't know how, that we are called to this posture of waiting. And as we mentioned earlier, the psalm is broken into two sections, verses 1 through 8 and then verses 9 through 20, and then it closes with 21 through 24. And verses 1 through 8 and 9 through 20 are incredibly repetitive, that we go through two cycles where we move from the statement of distress to trust, and then verses 9 through 20, the statement of distress to trust once again. And many people ask, well, why is it repeating itself just over and over what is he trying to convince us of and I believe one of the things that we're to learn from this is that when we bring our distress when we call on God in faith when we affirm our wavering faith with the truth and we recall the past of all of his kindness to us that this is not one and done that this is something we engage over and over in this short prayer, David encounters it twice. This is the place we're asked to abide. That we have to do this over and over and over is the practice, it's the posture of our lives. And friends, this is what it looks like to find God as a refuge, is to have the confidence that approaching God in faith, expressing our distress, 
affirming what we know to be true, recalling the past, that this is where we meet this God who has given all of his faithfulness to us in Jesus Christ because it's crucial to remember that as Jesus was going to the cross, this psalm was on his heart and mind. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And God was faithful to him, raised him from the dead, redeemed him from the distress. And because we belong to him, you can be assured of that same grace and that same mercy and that same unflinching faithfulness. It belongs to you because you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge all of our weakness and we confess that our weakness oftentimes leads us not to find you to be a rock and refuge. It drives us the other way. Help us in our weakness and may we learn to be strong as we look to you in all of your faithfulness. Build us up, teach us what it is to approach you in faith, to confess our distress, to recall the past, and to have your truth ministered to our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Stand and sing together.